Will you please turn in your Bibles, first of all, to the 22nd chapter of the book of Proverbs. I'll only read verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 22 before turning to our sermon text, which is familiar to us now, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, as we look at the qualifications, the biblical qualifications for the overseer or elder or shepherd of God's flock. We begin, however, with Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. And now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writing to Timothy, pastor in Ephesus, says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, How will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. The question before us this day and these days is what sort of a man should we be seeking to shepherd our congregation and our families? Well, above all, we want someone who's able to show us the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we? Teach us? Yes, of course, teach us. But more than teach us, we want someone to show us. We want someone to show our children throughout these fleeting years of their spiritual development. Shape their thinking about Jesus. Strike their own character while the iron's hot, while their young souls are pliable and ready to learn. Children shouldn't be without a pastor who's ready, willing, and able to show them Jesus. Because children and their parents need to know 
what is Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, what's he like? And the Bible's indispensable, of course, in answering that question because the Bible tells us infallibly who he is and what he's like. But looking around at all the various little shepherds that the great shepherd has set over his flock, that ought to give us some practical confirmation of this as well. Let us therefore in our pastoral search be as those certain Greeks who at the feast of the Passover in John chapter 12 came up to Philip saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now you and I, of course, will see him one day. We'll see him in person. And so will each of our children. Either he'll rise bodily from his throne in glory in heaven and come to meet us, or our bodies will be laid in their graves as we go to meet him. But we'll all see him. Until that day, we have the infallible word to guide us and with it the unspeakable gift of godly examples in the leadership of home and church. The Apostle Paul in this letter directs Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You'll find that statement of Paul's main purpose in writing this letter. You'll find that statement just a few lines down. In verse 15. So Paul's not offering any new doctrine here. The body of Christian doctrine's already been established. And Paul makes frequent reference to that doctrine throughout this letter. He cites, for instance, a number of trustworthy statements and urges Timothy to prescribe and teach these things. So there's no new doctrine here in First Timothy. <clears throat> and I would earnestly urge you, friends, beware of new doctrine. This letter is about ethics. It's about how God's people ought to live and conduct themselves, ourselves, in the household of God. Now, in order to do this, we really benefit from having examples to follow, don't we? And Christ graciously gives these living examples in the person and work of the elder, the overseer. The Apostle Peter agrees on this important aspect of leadership in his first letter, chapter 5. Peter exhorts the elders across the whole widely scattered church, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. 
And we've already begun to see how deeply into a man's life this exemplary behavior extends. The man must first be above reproach. That is, as we've seen, he must not be on the take. His decisions must not be for sale to the highest bidder. He's above reproach. And the husband of one wife. Together, they preside over a well-ordered household managed with all dignity. But so essential is it that the man be of high moral character, that Paul here heaps up all these adjectives. About a dozen of them or more are listed throughout verses 2 through 7. And many of these adjectives have definitions that somewhat overlap, each bringing out some particular color or shade of meaning. Because as we've seen, the Holy Spirit is not so much writing a checklist for us as he is painting a portrait of the man. Today we're considering three of these overlapping qualities together. They appear in verse 2. The elder or the overseer must be a man temperate, prudent, respectable. That's the way the New American Standard Bible, our pew Bible, translates the three words Paul uses. But to show you just how their meanings bleed into one another, the King James Version translates these same three words, vigilant, sober, of good behavior. And the ESV has sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. So tabulating all these various shades of meaning and giving it all a few days' thought, it seems to me that the man we want to be our next pastor has got to be three things. He's got to be sober. He's got to be sound. And he's got to be steady. So, first of all, you want your pastor to be sober. Well, that's a good thing, a good place to start, isn't it? We want a sober man. But sobriety covers a whole lot more ground than mere temperance in the use of alcoholic beverages. That's certainly included, and it's the original meaning of the word Paul uses here, but it extends to so much more besides. He's sober. Sobriety is this man's demeanor, his way of life. Now, this certainly doesn't rule out a man with a well-developed sense of humor. It doesn't rule out a man with an appreciation for good fun, not by any means. But he does routinely carry himself with a certain gravitas. A gravitas that enables others to trust his judgment. They trust him because he's not a man of excess in food or drink or dress or any other area of life. Probably he is not a man grossly obese. 
Probably he is not a man who dyes his hair blue. Beware the man, speaking of sobriety, beware the man who talks too much, who tends to dominate all his conversations. Beware of one who spends too much, running himself deeply into debt. Beware of one who jokes around too much. Beware of the man who's prone to hyperbole and overstatement when he speaks. In speech and habits, the ruling or teaching elder needs to be a man of moderation. His excellence by grace is that he reflects a distinct likeness to Jesus, who in the days of his humiliation had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So outwardly, there's really nothing extraordinary about him. There's certainly nothing weird or extravagant about him. He's just a regular guy. Maybe you've heard the question posed at some point. If Jesus were here among us today, what kind of a car would he drive? It's a completely speculative question, of course, but it's not a throwaway question if it causes us to think. And having thought about it, I think that whatever kind of car it might be, he wouldn't be going deeply into debt in order to acquire it. And he'd be driving it safely, sensibly, and soberly. That's the kind of man you want to be your pastor. The second overlapping quality is that our man needs to be sound, of sound mind, in particular, we've already seen how he carries himself outwardly. This second adjective focuses a little more upon the inner workings of his head. Does he, for instance, have a biblical worldview? Or is his worldview shaped only by the public schools and state universities he may have attended? Does he understand who God is, and what duty he requires of us. Does he, for that matter, even know who he himself is, and what righteousness is, and how wisely to navigate God's moral universe? If he can't, with a sound mind, teach and govern himself, how is he going to teach and govern us? The sound mind, one that's steeped and marinated in God's holy law and testimony, it tends to yield a sound citizen of God's kingdom. These men aren't neophytes. They're not striplings. These men are oaks of righteousness, no longer conformed to this passing age, 
this man is being progressively transformed by the renewing of his mind. Which is simply to say, he's learning. At whatever stage of life he is, he's learning. He's advancing still from strength to strength. So he's not the man he used to be. He's not a man to go off half-cocked, as perhaps he was as a younger man. He gives the matter at hand, whatever it may be, a second look, a long, lingering look. After all, he is an elder. He is a judge in the courts of the Lord. And he's learned not to think too highly of himself, but to think with sound judgment. Of the coming Christ, Isaiah the prophet in his 11th chapter writes, He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That's the kind of man we want moderating in the courts of the Lord's church, the kind of man we want to be our pastor. One of sound mind and sound judgment. And then thirdly, we need a man who, like Christ, the chief shepherd, is steady. The word Paul uses is that from which we've gotten our English words cosmos and even cosmetics. It means that this is a man who lives a beautiful, steady, well-ordered life. It's an attractive life because all of its constituent parts are in place. The man's well-behaved, balanced, respectable. And nature didn't make him that way, necessarily. Grace did. The grace of God did. By nature, men, like a poorly centered piece of clay on a potter's wheel, men tend to fly off in some unpredictable direction. I don't know whether you've ever uh, thrown a, a piece of pottery on a potter's wheel, but if it is not perfectly centered on that wheel, as the wheel starts to spin, it's going to go off and you don't know which way it's going to fly. It is centered. It is centered. And the potter can shape it. Apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shaping a man's character, men become eccentrics. Their lives are off-center. They become perhaps flamboyant in some way or other. Or a grouch. Or overly acquisitive. Or lazy. Or workaholic. A man can even become too studious. A man can be too studious. 
Too much a bookworm, Ecclesiastes reminds us in its closing lines. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to them is wearying to the body. It's said that Jonathan Edwards, while he was pastor in the frigid climate of Massachusetts back in the early 18th century, he regularly spent his mornings at the woodpile, splitting firewood, and only turned to his studies in the afternoons. A balanced, well-ordered life is a good life, every moving part keeping every other moving part in a steady state of equilibrium. That's what the ancient stargazers used to call the music of the spheres. So we're looking at the steady, well-balanced life of a regular guy. And yet here's the irony of it. How uncommon in today's world is the regular guy? The regular guy Paul's been describing here is by his simple integrity and dependability an adornment to the kingdom of God. He's never a sideshow or a distraction from it. Now, as we wrap this up today, we should probably ask the question, why do we not want eccentric oddballs to be overseeing Christ's church? Why, for instance, wasn't a locally famous celebrity like Simon Magus of Samaria, once he professed faith and was baptized, why wasn't he immediately elevated to the office of overseer in the Samaritan church? After all, look at the crowds Simon used to draw. Maybe some flamboyantly gifted man like Simon is just what the newly planted church in Samaria needs in order to turbocharge its mission efforts. Acts 8, beginning at verse 9, tells us that there in Samaria there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. That was this man's public image. But Peter, when he visited the Samaritan mission, under the care of Philip the evangelist, Peter, when he went to Samaria, thought otherwise. The church doesn't need flamboyant men with spectacular gifts leading us. We need men like Christ, who was no oddball. He was unique, but he was no oddball. We need men like Christ, who was, in a very true sense, the most regular of regular guys. He was always temperate, 
in his habits. He was always prudent in his judgment. And he was in every way respectable. Our elders are the ambassadors of Christ to this present generation. And Christ, our chief shepherd, was no eccentric oddball. Being in the very form of God, he made himself of no repute. He neither cried out nor raised his voice nor made his voice heard in the street. This is the man to whose likeness we all aspire, or should. And it's very truly our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul's describing when he lists these qualifications for the office of overseer. It is the Lord. So, will we ever find him? Will we ever find this man who's fit to shepherd us. You know, there are churches without pastors that actually come to despair of ever finding him. Churches of such lofty standards and few prospects that they'll go for years, years, without a settled pastor to teach and lead them. I say to you and to those congregations, take courage. Take courage. Of course we'll never find a man who fits this description to perfection. There's only one man who does. And he's governing his church from much higher ground than a pulpit in San Antonio. But the man of God's choosing and ours will certainly be a man striving toward this Christ-likeness. Even the Apostle Paul, you remember, for all Paul's personal attainments, whether by nature or by grace, even Paul resolved not to rest content, but to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even Paul was moving forward. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude and not lose heart. The man we're looking for won't be perfect, but he may be and should be a very good fit for us. Because none of us is perfect either. And if his irregularities and rough edges can be made to correspond in some interlocking way with ours, then together, pastor and congregation, together we may, for the glory of God, achieve the goal of a completed puzzle. A church by grace firing on all cylinders, all its constituent parts working together for the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom of God in the hearts of men. By way of brief application then, let's approach his selection 
with care and discernment. Approach his selection with care and discernment. Let's, his, let's approach his selection with the particular needs of this congregation in view. And let's approach it not with dread, not with despair, not with a sense of hopelessness, but in joyful anticipation. Because Christ has promised he'll build his church and the church he builds won't long go unfurnished with every needful gift. Amen.